This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A Radio.com station. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning, fellow leprechauns. Hope you had a week filled with shamrocks and rainbows. And even better, today is the second day of spring. Now that is something worth smiling about. Today we have two very special guests. In December 2019, many people coined the phrase that we'd be looking forward to 2020, the year of perfect vision. Well, the doctors joining us today are here to talk about ways to do just that, protect and perfect your precious gift of sight. Our guests are both ophthalmologists and include Dr. Robert Lehman from Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia and Dr. Leah McGuire from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We'll learn about common conditions including cataracts, glaucoma, LASIK surgery, and cornea transplants. And I have to say, both of these doctors are world-class, talented physicians with great experience, but the coolest thing about both of them is that they're my medical school classmates. Dr. Robert Lehman is a board-certified ophthalmologist and a member of the Cataract and Primary Care Service at the world-famous Will's Eye Hospital. Rob, so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mary. So we talk about the, the with aging, the leading causes of adult blindness, and there are a few that the most common are macular degeneration, cataracts, glaucoma, all these things can influence our vision. So at what age should we begin having regularly scheduled eye exams? Well, according to the American Academy of Ophthalmology, which is our sort of oversight board, um, the recommendations for comprehensive uh, eye examinations are that for adults, uh, patients without risk factors for eye disease, a comprehensive eye exam should be performed every uh, five to 10 years in patients under 40, every two to four years in patients uh, between 40 and uh, say 55, and one to three years in patients between 55 and 64 years, and then one to two years in patients over 65 years. But if patients have uh, risk factors for things like glaucoma, meaning they're black or Hispanic, or they have a family history 
then those patients uh, need comprehensive eye exams uh, performed by an ophthalmologist every one to two years in patients under 40 and um, over 55 years. Uh, they should be having them uh, every uh, one to three years. Uh, uh, excuse me. They should have them uh, one to three years in ages 40 to 54 and probably every year over uh, 55. Okay. And, and what do you do in a routine eye exam? Of course, you check for nearsightedness, farsightedness. What else do you learn from a routine eye exam? Well, part of the routine eye exam is, uh, as you said, to check for a refractive uh, error, meaning is the patient nearsighted or farsighted, but we do much more. We uh, do uh, essentially check a patient's pupils to see if they have some neurologic issues going on. Uh, we do uh, uh, what's called a slit lamp examination where we actually look at the front part of the eye using high magnification. Uh, we then check uh, the intraocular pressure, which is one of the components of uh, glaucoma. Uh, and then we do uh, typically a dilated fundoscopic examination, which means we put drops in the patient's eye, make their pupils large, and then uh, using a special instrument that we put on our, on our head, uh, we then can visualize the entire retina uh, in the back of the eye. And the retina is like the film in the camera, uh, mm -hmm. or when we used to have film in cameras. Uh, and that's the light sensing element of the eye. And so we can see that, and that's uh, the area that we can uh, look for things like macular degeneration and uh, glaucoma because glaucoma is a problem uh, of the optic nerve, which is present when, uh, that we see when we do a fundoscopic examination. So the eyes really are the windows to the soul. You dilate the pupils, and then you can look in and see blood vessels, and if they look normal in shape and size, you say, great. But if they're narrowed or you can say, gee, that's a sign of diabetes. Maybe this person doesn't realize their sugars are, are elevated. Or you can find other clues that lead to other medical conditions. So you're more than an eye doctor. You're really looking at the whole person, of course. One of the most common findings is a cataract. What exactly is a cataract? Um, a cataract is essentially the lens of the eye, uh, the focusing part of the eye that over uh, time becomes uh, less clear. So when we're born, the lens of the eye is perfectly clear. Uh, and as we age, it becomes uh, hazy and uh, will typically start to become a little bit yellow and then eventually yellow-brown and then eventually brown and then eventually it can turn brown-black and then black uh, as, as the patient ages and the cataract progresses. And, and so, what puts it at risk for cataracts? Are there... Yeah, there are some risk factors for cataracts, and the most common is obviously age. So in a patient who is in their 20s, they're not likely to have a cataract. Uh, pretty much everyone over the age of 50 has some degree of a cataract. Uh, and the older you are, the more likely it is to become uh, what we call visually significant. Uh, now, visually significant means it's impacting on the patient's uh, ability to function uh, in terms of their activities of daily living, be it uh, they're having trouble reading, they're having trouble uh, driving, things like that. Other things that are risk factors are uh, diabetes, smoking is a uh, risk factor, a his history of inflammation,
inflammation in the eye or, or what we call intraocular inflammation. There are some inherited diseases that can be associated with cataracts and also uh, history of steroid use. Now, when I talk about steroid use, I'm not talking about anabolic steroids that uh, the, the uh, weightlifters use. I'm talking about prednisone, which is an anti-inflammatory medication that is used mm-hmm. for a variety of uh, systemic, medic- uh, systemic diseases, such as inflammatory bowel disease, such as uh, collagen vascular disease, such as asthma, those sorts of things. Right, right. And what exactly happens during the surgery? I'm always fascinated by this. Um, during the surgery, uh, the, when we have someone who's undergoing cataract surgery, we uh, we bring the patient to a surgery center, uh, which is, can be in a hospital or can be a freestanding surgery center. Uh, we give them uh, some medications to relax them. We take them back into the operating room, uh, and after the patient has been dilated, we then go and make a small incision in the eye that's about three millimeters big. Uh, we then typically place an instrument in the eye that vibrates at about 40,000 times a second and essentially liquefies the lens. Uh, once the patient's lens is removed, we then put a new lens in its place called an implant. Implants uh, are, are come in different powers, and typically when we, we choose an implant to make it so that the patient no longer uh, needs to wear glasses for distance, um, and uh, then once the surgery is done, the patient goes home. The, you, the surgery itself takes about uh, 15 minutes or so, uh, and they're usually in the surgery center for about uh, in the range of an hour to an hour and a half. It's um, incredible. And I know you said... Other, oh, sorry. Uh, let me finish. There are some... Um, some other uh, issues. There is a. Uh, there are some uh, special lenses, and we sometimes will use special lenses to correct for someone's pre-existing uh, astigmatism, or we uh, have some lenses that actually will correct patients for distance and uh, up close at the same time. Unbelievable, Rob. Um, any patient stories that stand out? Yeah, there's one that I had uh, a patient uh, who uh, owned a. Um, a uh, restaurant in West Philadelphia, and uh, it was um, an Indian restaurant, and the patient uh, came in and had very, very poor vision, Uh, and uh, I did his cataract surgery. The next day he came in, he went from from hand motions, meaning he could only see someone waving his uh, hand in front of him, to 2030. And um, five weeks later, when I saw him at the five-week post-op, the son was all upset, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, can you put the cataract back in? And I said, no, unfortunately, this only goes in one direction. I said, why? He said, well, Dad used to, uh, he owned the, the store or the restaurant, and he said he used to sit in the corner and drink beer and ouzo, and the next thing you know, he's uh, essentially trying to tell the kids who are now running the place how to, how to run it, and it's all the problems that were, uh, that were uh, he was seeing. It was so back in go, charge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, he was back in charge, exactly. Thanks. Well, let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with more on macular degeneration. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. We are happy to have Dr. Robert Lehman from Will's Eye Hospital. Rob, 
another common issue, macular degeneration. What is the macula? And tell us what that expression means, please. Uh, the macula is uh, refers to a portion of the retina, which is uh, located in the very center of the back of the eye, uh, and it is the area of the retina that is the most sensitive uh, and is the reason why we can see as well as we can. The peripheral retina, unfortunately, uh, does not have the resolving power of, of as the macula does, and so that if that gets damaged, then the patients uh, don't end up seeing very well. And is it pretty common? Uh, to develop uh, a problem, yes. Uh, macular degeneration is probably the most common uh, retinal problem that we see. Um, it actually affects about 11 million people in the United States have some form of macular degeneration. And there are two types of macular degeneration. One is called dry macular degeneration and one is called wet macular degeneration. The dry macular degeneration we think is due to uh, an a, an abnormality of the circulation to the uh, the retina uh, the retina itself and that causes some degeneration in the pigment layer underneath the retina and that causes a loss of vision. Unfortunately we don't have a great treatment for that. Typically we uh, offer people uh, to use uh, vitamins uh, and this is the one case where uh, we think using vitamins is probably a great idea. Using the vitamins that are advertised on TV is um, questionable in terms of its, uh, its, its value. Uh, the other flavor of uh, macular degeneration is called wet macular degeneration, and that occurs in the uh, context in which uh, abnormal blood vessels start to grow underneath the retina, uh, and the first thing they do is they fluid, and then eventually they break and bleed, and once you have blood under the retina, the retina scars, and then the patient loses vision permanently, unfortunately. So Ooh. in patients who have wet macular degeneration, uh, if we diagnose them at the point in which the blood vessels are leaking, and typically those patients will develop um, a distortion in their vision. If they come in and we diagnose that, we then can treat them by injecting a medication into the eye that actually inhibits the um, fat growth factor that causes these abnormal blood vessels to grow, uh, and that will cause the blood vessels to shrivel up. Now, the problem with that story is it's not a one-time uh, effort. It typically requires... Uh, um, ongoing treatment, and very often these patients end up getting uh, injections every month or every two months or three months, depending on the patient. They are now working on some uh, variations on this that are longer lasting, and so in the future we will probably not be subjecting the patients to as frequent inje uh, intraocular injections. Now, the intraocular injections sound really scary, but in fact they're not. They're very they're minimally uncomfortable, uh, and they save your vision. So it's definitely a a, a reasonable uh, trade-off there. I was just going to say, if you said I had to come once a week for an injection to save my eyes, I bet 99.9% .9 people would say Yeah, and, and people actually, it sounds scary, but it's actually well-tolerated. Mm -hmm. It's incredible what you're able to do, and, and I'm hearing the recurrent theme. Smoking bumps the risk for cataracts. Smoking plays with the macula and the vessels that can leak and all that. So let's talk a little bit about glaucoma. I know you take care of so many patients with glaucoma, and tell us how that happens. The optic nerve is damaged? Yes, and, and the 
it, it turns out that uh, in patients who have glaucoma, the typical scenario is that the drain of the eye and the way the eye works is there's fluid being constantly produced in the eye and constantly being drained out. Uh, so it's kind of like a sink with a uh, faucet that's on and a drain that's working. Uh, the problem in the eye is that in some patients, for reasons uh, we oftentimes don't understand, the drain will uh, not work as well. And so uh, because this is a closed system, unlike your sink where you can have a flood, uh, the only thing that can happen is if there's not enough fluid going out and too much fluid coming in, the pressure will go up. Now, it turns out in the eye, most of the structures in the eye actually tolerate uh, the elevated pressure without any troubles, with the exception of the optic nerve. And the optic nerve can't tolerate a pressure uh, that is elevated for a long period of time without becoming damaged. And uh, that's the hallmark of glaucoma is that you have a damaged optic nerve that leads to visual field loss. Uh, and unfortunately, this tends to be progress uh, progressive and permanent um, if it's not treated. And you explained that so well, because if you have a plug in the drain and you keep pouring the water in, that's going to bump the water in the sink and the pressure in your eye. But if the angle on the way out is closed, that causes pressure buildup. And tell us the difference. How would a patient know that they have well, the, the closed there, angles more dangerous? There are two different kinds of, uh, of glaucoma. One is the open angle glaucoma, in which the fluid in the eye actually can get to the drain, uh, but the drain isn't working well. Um, so I liken this to the concept of um, you have a problem with your uh, the sink, the drain in the sink looks great, but there's a problem getting from the sink to the sewer line. Mm -hmm. uh, that's open angle glaucoma. Narrow angle glaucoma is a situation in which the fluid has trouble getting to the drain, and that can happen typically in patients who are very farsighted. That's a typical story for someone to have narrow angles. Hmm. Um, and I, the 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 um, sort of analogy I use is that let's go back to the sink if you have a towel that's floating around in the sink uh, and you're pouring water in there uh, and it's draining out at some point the, the the towel can end up going into the drain and clogging up the sink and now you have a flood and that's the same thing that can happen in, in, in narrow or closed angle glaucoma where now the fluid doesn't have a chance to get to the drain and go out of the eye and now the pressure get, can go very high in a short period of time and that's called an, an acute episode of glaucoma. And those patients have sort of a, a, a reasonable medical emergency and need to be treated um, quickly. Those patients also, because the pressure is going up very acutely, will symptoms. It's kind of like in high blood pressure. Your blood pressure, uh, if someone goes from uh, 120 over 80 to uh, 200 over 150 in uh, five years, they have no symptoms and they feel great. But if they do that in, in six hours, they'll feel terrible. Same thing happens with the eye pressure. If the eye pressure goes up very slowly, the eye adapts and you lose vision, but you have no symptoms other than that. If the eye pressure goes up acutely, then it will feel like uh, you have pain. Uh, it looks like you have pain eye but it, you have an aching throbbing pain some people get nauseated and vomit with this um, your vision gets blurred and some people have halo colored halos around lights Ooh. and those are the symptoms of an acute episode of glaucoma 
And the key and that's is treated. That's mm-hmm. treated. Uh, if you can get their pressure down, you then treat them using a laser to make a little hole in the iris, the colored part of the eye, and that reorients the fluid uh, flow in the eye and prevents them from developing an acute episode again. It allows the iris to come fall away from the uh, drain uh, of the eye, and, and now and the, the normal fluid is, is uh, reestablished. So you want to release that pressure, and especially with the more dangerous one where the person would feel like they have a painful pink eye, you want to get there right. pretty within like 24 hours to prevent permanent blindness. And the, the less obvious right. one, the one that patients don't have symptoms, is the second leading cause of blindness in the world, and the risk factors are age, as you said before, African Americans are at increased risk, family history, um, and, and with diabetes and hypertension, that might increase the risk too. But so the closed angle or the more acute onset get to the emergency room right away would you suggest that people go right to a a general hospital obviously if they could get to wills um, yeah, or an eye you're hospital. better. You're always better off going to an eye hospital. The problem is they're not um, they're not always available. So uh, mm-hmm. what we uh, what you should do is go to a general hospital and make sure an ophthalmologist uh, is either going to come in to see you or you're going to end up getting referred there the next day. Let me mm-hmm. just say one other thing: the open angle glaucoma is treated differently. I mentioned we use a laser to make a hole in the iris for the narrow angle. Typically, we use drops uh, and a different kind of laser to treat uh, as a first-line treatment for open-angle glaucoma. And if that's not controlled, then sometimes patients need full-fledged surgery to lower the intraocular pressure. Mm-hmm. And again, that's one of the things you do in a routine eye exam. You measure eye pressure. Is it the same in both right. eyes? Is it something we have to address? Rob, if somebody wanted to reach you uh, or learn more about Will's Eye, the website is Will's, W-I-L-L-S I E Y E Will's Eye.org. Is that a good place to read about these topics, too? Yes, they have uh, information. The other place you can get some information is at the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and I think it's aao.org. Beautiful. Rob, thank you so much. A wealth of information. You only get one set of eyes. Please take care of them. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And now it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Leo McGuire, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Senior Member of the Cornea Service at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And again, my dear friend and medical school colleague. Hi, Leo. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Marianne. It's always great to be with you, and uh, and it brings me back to my Philly days. Well, and your other friend, Rob Lehman, just said his hellos, so it's a shame we can't all be together in a studio, but that will happen soon. Um, Leo, thanks for well, at least coming. We had four years of medical school, so that's great. I, uh, the, you know, we should go back. <laughs> but um, it, we're so lucky to have you here today because I know you're a master of cornea diseases. Tell us, tell our listeners, if you would, what the cornea is. Well, the cornea is the transparent curved surface that lies on the very front of the eye, and like any transparent, smoothly curved surface. 
it acts like a lens, and it actually does two-thirds of the focusing of the eye. Mm-hmm. And I guess the actual lens does the other one-third. And What are and common causes? Right. Mm-hmm. They work together, kind of like a regular camera, mm-hmm. as you were saying the other day. What are common sure. causes mm-hmm. of damage to the cornea? Well, there are kind of minor types of uh, damage, like uh, a corneal abrasion, where just the protection cells in the front of the cornea are scratched off. But because it's so sensitive, that can still cause significant pain. But they heal within a few days, and then you're back to normal. Uh, More serious ones are from trauma for a laceration of the cornea, or someone gets an infection, or gets a chemical injury, especially the kind of chemical you can get uh, from drain cleaners and that type of thing. Mm. Just those the those are serious because they scarred, they cause scarring and haze the deeper corneas that uh, don't go away by themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and for our listeners, I always think of the cornea, if I look at somebody from the side and you see that clear bubble, it's kind of like an, an extra protected um, transparency over your, your the globe or the eyeball. Now, a lot of people are familiar with the term LASIK or LASIK surgery that would correct your vision if you're nearsighted or farsighted. Can you explain mm-hmm. that, the basics of that, and the other option called PRK? Yeah, um, they, they both fall under the category of laser vision correction, mm-hmm. um, and they're both very good procedures that work about the same way. Both procedures change uh, the patient's spectacle correction by changing the front curve of the solid part of the cornea that makes up about 90% of the corneal thickness. And that sculpting changes the corneal curve uh, to the one that they need to see 2020 without glasses. Uh, PRK and LASIK just perform that laser treatment at, at different layers of the solid part of the cornea. PRK treats at the very front part of that corneal tendon layer and LASIK, there's a flap that's made, lifted up, and then the LASIK treats, treats a slightly deeper layer and then puts the flap back in position again. Mm-hmm. And these procedures are usually very successful, yes? Yeah, and they're successful with a qualifier that you select your patients well and don't just operate on everybody that moves. If, if you're careful about your patient selection, it has one of the highest uh, improvements of quality of life and one of the lowest infection rates of any operation that's done in any surgical subspecialty. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting point because I know with, um, I always used to think if you're going to have the need for surgery in two eyes, what if you get an infection? You don't don't want both to be affected at the same time. But this is so well uh, seasoned. You're so seasoned and it's become so um, well done that you can do both eyes at the same time, and um, away you go. That's correct. Yeah, uh, early on in laser vision correction, there were studies that were done of three thousand people who had both eyes done at the same time, and another three thousand who had them done sequentially, one done one day and one done later. And they found in both sets the. Uh, complication rate was really low and pretty much exactly the same between the two. So then everybody just went to doing two at at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I would guess too, Leah, when you think about it, obviously if you could see more clearly um, and these kinds of issues that we're discussing today are more common in older people, you're going to see fewer hip fractures. People are going to be 
able to see <laughs> where they're walking and that sort of thing. So it's of many fold benefits of uh, these surgeries. Then I know in the, the world of the cornea, cornea transplants. Tell us about that. I know you have so much experience. Why would somebody need a cornea transplant? Yeah, well, uh, when a cornea becomes swollen or optically warped or scarred so that it can't focus well, even with glasses, then you need to do a corneal transplant to restore the clarity of the cornea and uh, normal vision. And what would cause that to happen? Because how would that be different than like a refraction change? Ah, well, um, refraction change just means not that there's a change in the cornea. It's just you need the cornea and the lens together working okay. They just, if you're looking at distance, it may be blurry, but you put glasses on and then the light goes through the glasses, your normal cornea, the normal lens, it makes a good picture. Mm. Um, but but if you have uh, swelling or scarring or something in the cornea, light goes through the glasses, it hits the cornea, it's like hitting a frosted window or a warped mm -hmm. window and it goes in and makes a bad picture. Mm -hmm. So you have to remove that bad um, cornea and replace it with a new one. Gotcha. So I know we've come a long way. We, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I think I would, cornea transplants began maybe in the mid-90s, 95-ish, but the year 2005 was a big year. Walk us through that if you would, please. Well, well, well corneal transplants have been around for a really long time. And actually, so, uh, Dr. by name of Castro Viejo, who did all the original work on modern corneal transplants here at Mayo back in the in the 1930s and wow. reported like 200 cases by the early 40s. But there was only one way to do it uh, until about 2005. Whatever you needed it for, whether swelling or warping or scarring, you had to cut out the seven to eight central millimeters of a 12 millimeter cornea and then replace it and sew in uh, a new circular plug of uh, corneal tissue from somebody who donated their eyes when they, they passed. Uh, but 70% of the people who need a cornea need it because their, their own cornea is swollen. And in those cases, the only thing that's wrong is a problem with the back 2 to 3% of the cornea's thickness. And so some smart people got together and said, well, wait a minute. Why take the whole cornea out if we can just replace that back layer and put in new pumper cells from a donor that will take all the swelling out of the cornea and restore um, vision that way? And that started around 2005. Within two years, almost every corneal surgeon in the world had adapted it because it's so much faster. It uh, is very high level of vision. And unlike, it has a lower uh, graph rejection rate than the old way that mm. we did it. And it's just, it's just overall a lot better uh, for the patient's quality of life and also for the surgeon. It's just so much easier. Less tedious. Well, I would think too, Leo, yeah. if the cornea is about, and tell me if I'm wrong here, about 12, mi 12 millimeters thick and you're taking out seven uh, plus millimeters. 12 millimeters. 12 Deep. millimeters in diameter, oh. it's only about, 
it's only about a half a millimeter to six tenths of a millimeter thick. Oh, sorry. Okay, but you're taking a wide piece, yeah. as you say. It would need sutures well, that last up to a yeah, year. Imagine, mm-hmm. yeah, just imagine, you know, a circle that's, you know, 12 measures in diameter, and then inside it another circle that's uh, seven mm-hmm. measures, whatever it is, or anything. That's that's what it is. So it's like mm-hmm. a circle within a circle. Yeah, so if you take a big a big seven millimeter circle out, it, you need sutures for up to a year, it heals slowly, but the new, uh, more modified procedure, the, the transplant just attaches to the the, the yeah. recipients. The, the back layer, the yeah. back layer they were putting on is a layer that sucks water out of the corn and it keeps it thin and transparent. Mm-hmm. And so all you have to do is slide this into a, a minor uh, wound about the size of a cataract wound. You put an air bubble under it and float it into position. And once it attaches to the back of the patient's own cornea, it just sucks on. So you mm-hmm. don't need to suture it or anything. And actually, with the newer types of pump or cell transplant, you, you have to look really hard to even see where the edge of it is. And so the person's going to recover more quickly. They're going to reject yep. the transplant less often. Much All less good. frequently. Mm-hmm. And the glasses prescription usually doesn't change very much at all from what their glasses prescription was before. Whereas the older type where you had the, the sutures in for a year and all that, a lot of times they would end up with a very different glasses prescription and a lot more astigmatism yeah. than um, you know they had in their other eye or what they had before surgery. So it, it's a major, major advance. Beautiful. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Leo McGuire from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And we're here in our final segment with Dr. Leo McGuire, ophthalmologist and cornea specialist from Mayo Clinic. So Leo, that's fascinating to hear about cornea transplants. It's just incredible how far it's come. And I know we think of the cornea as part of the lens and focus, but it also is a barrier to infection, which brings us to the emergency department. What are the most common problems that an ophthalmologist sees in in an emergency setting? Well, we talked about corneal abrasions before, and as long as they heal quick, they're not a big problem, even though they hurt like crazy. But Mm -hmm. things like an infection where you have an infection in the deeper tissue in the cornea uh, takes it from a clear, smooth surface to something that's scarred. And those are very serious. So if you think you're having an infection from contact lens wear, if something gets in your eye, uh, that you need to get seen right away to prevent scarring. Also, chemical injuries, especially like drain cleaners, if it gets in your eye, you need to irrigate it right away before you even get there and then go to the ER and Mm -hmm. get it taken care of because they can cause very serious uh, scarring in the cornea. So would you tell somebody cold water, or is there anything specific about that, water temp or anything? Whatever you got. (laughs) You just want to dilute it so it doesn't have a chance and and go to the ER right away. Stat. Well, I know, too, that um, 
you know, my son bought a house that needs work, and my my husband every time he says, Andrew, if you're going to be painting, if you're going to be using a drill or any of those things, please wear goggles because and, things fly. And I, right. I'm driving home from work, and I see yeah. some people on motorcycles wear goggles, others don't, and you say, gee whiz, if something flies and hits you in the eye, you'll be sorry. Yeah, right? ab- absolutely. Uh, if you're using chemicals that are potentially dangerous, anything that can fly up in your eye. You know, fortunately, we have two, and, and, and sometimes, you know, usually most of the time, one gets uh, damaged. But even firecrackers, firecrackers, everybody feels immortal when they use a firecracker, but the, the most, the saddest cases, the ones that really destroy young people's lives or someone who has a firecracker uh, malfunction and go up in the eye, they get heat injury, they get chemical injury, they get explosive injury, and and it, and you can't do uh, corneal transplants on really severe ones because it just is such a disaster for a lot of those eyes. Oh. So especially Fourth of July is getting closer all the time. Uh, think about that yes. uh, for sure. That, that's really, really important. And thank you for mentioning that, because I think most people think they'll lose a finger or they'll get burnt. Nobody talks about the danger to your eyes. And the same with cat- um, sorry, um, contact lenses. My daughter wears contacts, and uh, you know, one of her friends thought that two weeks, you can have the, wear these contacts for two weeks. She thought it meant I can li- leave them in my eyes 24-7 for two weeks, and she got a very bad scar on her corneas. So yeah. that's another thing, thing to drive home, especially young people, because they think, ah, yeah, we're good. I'm going to just go to bed with them on. Exactly. Leo, thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. It's my pleasure. Any parting words for our listeners? No, mm-hmm. I think you, you covered the gamut in a, in a nice piece of time. We got major parts of cornea and external disease taken care of, and I tip my hat to you. Uh, well, Leo, hopefully we'll have our med school reunion one of these years. We had to delay with COVID, yeah. but what I want to say to you is hold the mayo. <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> Thanks, Leo. Take care. You're very welcome. My pleasure. now for your real champion. I call this segment, Please Mr. Postman. We've all become accustomed to instant communication. Make a cell call anywhere in the world, send an email, shoot a text. But sometimes it takes a good old-fashioned greeting card to connect with people who have touched your life. And when you really want to express your heartfelt congratulations, get well wishes, condolences, or let someone know how much you miss them. Getting a card in the mail can make someone feel so special. I know my grandson Tommy felt like a big boy on his second birthday this week when he opened that big blue envelope with his name on it and found a card from Granny and G-Pop with all the doggies who were howling happy birthday. Meet Betty Ross. That's Betty Ross, not Betsy Ross. A woman whose mission is to spread kindness. Betty spent many years teaching junior and senior high school. Then, 18 years as a facilitator for the Navy, she would teach classes that would help people reduce stress when they were approaching a writing project. Relax your body and mind before you sit down to write. Don't try to write and edit at the same time. It will impair your creativity. 
Her quest to help people relax led her to training as a hypnotherapist, teaching people in corporate and government seminars how to be more effective at work and at home. Convincing people to let mind and body work together led to workshops at retirement centers and nursing homes too. One of her techniques is the use of affirmation. If a person has chronic pain, begin every day saying, I'm feeling better. And she finds it often makes a remarkable difference in the person's perception. Positive self-talk leads to gratitude and changes attitudes for the better. It also creates a positive energy for the person and those around them. You see a trend here. Betty truly wants to comfort people. Well, about 14 years ago, she was volunteering in a local nursing home. Christmas time was nearing and she noticed a definite dip in spirits among those who would be alone for the holiday. Betty shares that about 60% of nursing home patients get no visitors all year. 40% have no children. Imagine being 80 or 90 years old with no visitors day after dreary day all made worse with COVID. Betty's heart moved her to do something about it. She remembered a time in her early days of teaching when she worked in a school where the neighborhood had families that were struggling financially. But at Christmas time, it was the effort people put into small tokens of cheer that brought the community to life. So she contacted local principals and began the Caring Kids Christmas Card Program. Betty supplies Christmas cards to several local elementary schools. Children fill the cards with special messages of love and prayers and often add little drawings. Then she delivers them to nursing home residents and watches their faces light up. They're often overwhelmed by the sweet gesture that hearkens the feeling of holiday spirit from the children. Betty also realizes that she's shaping today's caring children to tomorrow's giving adults, teaching them to donate greetings, clothing, and food later even reminding them how to spend a little allowance to give to others. Betty's program was described in Women's World magazine with a quote, It means so much to me, it touched my heart, said an elderly resident. And she keeps the card on her nightstand. For 14 years, Betty has continued the annual delivery, over a thousand students who have written over 20,000 cards. Her work continued this year, despite the pandemic, she continued to stay in touch with principals online and still delivered Christmas cheer and lifted many lonely hearts. Once COVID leaves town, she plans to add birthday and other holiday cards to the program. We salute you, Betty Ross, your real champion. Tune in next week to hear more on colorectal cancer during March, the Awareness Month. If you have a champion you'd like us to highlight, send us an email at info at yourradiodoctor.com. Speaking of whom, a special shout out to my friend Larry Henry. At Jefferson, he always helps fix my computer. And we share the same philosophy. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones from Proverbs 17.22. Join the Blue Lights campaign. Hang a strand of blue lights on front of your home or business. Send us a photo of your lights to info at bluelightscampaign.com. Spring has sprung, so stay right here for the beautiful love ballads of Frank Sinatra. And while you're spring cleaning, add this to your list. I promise to get screened for colon cancer because I know and you know that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.